Hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. Uh, for the first time I'm joined by someone that's not from uh, the UK, so uh, welcome. We've got Brandon, uh, Brendan, sorry, Brendan from Wheatus. Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us a bit about yourself then and, and, and the band. Uh, I started the band, or started writing for a band that I had a concept of in like 94, 95 and um, demoed uh, what would be our first three or some parts of our fourth record for the next four years uh recording and re-recording and uh finished our first album uh in 1999 early 2000 and uh it was released later that summer in america and then the following march in the uk i suppose you're you're from new york originally as well so i am yeah yeah from new york yeah what was it like growing up and, and trying to make it as a band there because i suppose from an outsider looking in uh, and being from scotland you almost think sure of, we think in new york is this place Times Square and the, right. you know, all these touristy places, but it must be so much different. Well, I worked in Times Square when we got a record deal. Sure. I was at a job at a company called ASI, um, service manager for a company that did virtual private networks for uh, Wall Street okay. banks and stuff. And um, before they tried to destroy the world, although I think they were working on it the whole time. But um, the uh, uh, I grew up in a place outside of New York City about some somewhat akin to where you grew up in yeah. Motherwell. It was about 40, 30 miles or so uh, east of the city on Long Island, on the north shore of Long Island in a place called Northport. And Northport was a, uh, in the 70s when my parents moved there and in the 80s, it was a sort of lobster town on decline, you know, sure. like uh, a lot of out of work fishermen and, um, and it was a, it was sort of a rough place, to be honest. Um, it wasn't very pleasant. It is now. It's become this sort of like suburban paradise these days. It's Almost old the, Victorian the homes that have been uh, renovated and perfect vicinity for people, yeah. I suppose, commuting into the. Yeah, exactly. Manhattan it's a commute now. It is very much a commuter town. Um, and I was a commuter in high school. I commuted to uh, high school about, uh, you know, twenty-five miles toward the city. Uh, at a place called Mineola for a boys' school that I went to. It took about an hour and a half to get there if you included the walk and everything. So, um, oh, there's the Scottish national flag. Everyone's marching. As as we're recording, uh, you might not see it outside the bus, but you might hear the bagpipes that say the Scottish Independence March, and they're hopefully expecting 100,000 in the streets. But I'm sure if you read the, the papers in the next few days, they'll say there was 20,000 there or so. Yeah. But, uh, That's good. March it up, guys. What's don't don't forget to take your oil with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's passing. What's what's the thoughts over there in Scottish independence without going too political? I think you. Place? I think if uh, if the uh, if the UK leaves the European Union, uh, that Scotland should stay with it. That's the smart money. Stay I with mean, the EU. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, you know, you you have the power, and you do have some nice oil resources that everyone's eyeballing, including. Vladimir Putin, so you can uh, you can take him with you. I'd quite like to hope that one day that becomes a reality. But yeah, yeah. yeah. You're gonna have to fight for it. Yeah, it's not gonna be easy, is it? It's not gonna be just a political debate. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna get nasty. Certainly. So is there know. much talk about it over in the media? What what's happening in the UK and Scotland and yeah, every time something, every time uh, the the uh, 
Theresa May's government has some sort of like debacle. It makes American news for a moment. Sure. I happen to read it a lot more than my fellow countrymen do. Of course. Um, try and follow up because we do a lot of work over here. I'm also an EU citizen. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. dual citizen American. Have you got, where's, have you got family from over this way? Or? In Ireland. Yeah. Brilliant. Good. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, um, I mean, uh, we've, I've talked about this on the BBC. Um, if a young band is trying, if you don't have freedom of movement and a young band is trying to get their start, certainly, um, you know, Ibiza or 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 somewhere in France might be might be the first place that it happens. Sure. Uh, maybe in Eastern Europe, even you know. Yeah. Um, so, you want to be able to get down there really fast. Totally. And be light on your feet, and if you have to do a work permit for every single territory and a carnet manifest for every single territory that you have to go through to get there, yeah. you're never going to get there, and your moments can pass you by. And that that's um, something to really think about in terms of UK music exports. They have been substantial Certainly. in the last you know half a century yeah. and more. So um, yeah. Just be careful. <laughs> we'll jump back to New York then, since you, you talked about exports. You were you were growing up just in the outskirts of New York, and yeah, who were your musical influences? What was your very much ACDC, yeah, uh, Angus Young and his brother Malcolm. Talking of Scottish exports right there. Yeah, a couple of couple of Scottish outcasts in Australia. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, uh, they uh, the by the time I was about ten years old, I was really heavily into ACDC. Sure. Um, and. Uh, sort of obsessed with them you know it wasn't there was no internet there was no and they were very rarely on television it was very hard to catch acdc on tv sure. and there was no youtube so you couldn't just like check it out anytime you wanted um and uh that's that's when i sort of like got the got the hunger for that whole thing yeah. uh heavy music sure um i didn't like bands like kiss the the glam stuff was right over my head. I wasn't into that. I was into Morrissey and, uh, or I should say, the Smiths yes. at the time. Yeah. Um, later on in my high school years, I was exposed to that stuff: the Lightning Seeds and the Cure and and uh, so on. But um, Stone Roses a bit. Um, but it was really the Metallica, AC/DC, and Rush early on. And also, I was always into Prince really heavily I was checked out yeah yeah everything he ever did Tom Petty Willie Nelson um, I, I, there was a lot of great Madonna music that came out in the late 80s and early 90s like sure. the song Rain ever hear the song yeah, Rain yeah, yeah that's, that's stuff I was really into um, but when it came to like practicing music in my own time when I was 13 14 15 I didn't do anything on Saturday except for play guitar Sure. Like all day, and I played guitar when I got home from school too. It was even like almost too late to do it sometimes, but but I did. Did you teach yourself? Or were you... I taught myself. Yeah. yeah, I I took a I had a few lessons from a guy named Rick Health when I was uh, maybe nine or ten, I guess. Um, and uh, he was he was a great guy. He just kind of taught me how to play some songs. Taught me basic. Uh, chord placement for like back and black and highway to hell um but that was short-lived when it came to the solos and all the rush catalog i was on my own for that by that time and i i taught myself how to play 
my style that I have is I just sort of aping uh, Mark Knopfler okay. and Willie Nelson, the combo Brilliant. technique with the pinky and the ring finger kind yeah. of thing. So, um, yeah. And when did you think, you know, this is something that I want to do? Because if you're starting at 10, it's a young I, age to start I thought it was something it. I wanted to do the first time I saw Angus yeah. do his thing. Yeah, I mean, I like, I wanted to be... I wanted to be on that stage. I wanted any... I thought to myself, if I could do any version of that, any version of that, any scale sure. of that, I would do it. That would be it. Uh, and I, of course, I went through the sort of, like, college preparatory track of most uh, suburban white... Uh, Americans and wound up in university studying uh, I was in the pre-med right. program I did two years in pre-med okay. um, and then I switched to history uh, with a minor in psych and I um, graduated with a degree in, in history kind of focused on Russian Revolution and World War Two but um, uh, that stuff still interests me heavily, yeah. but I, at the whole, the whole time I was, music was what I was doing with most of the time in my life or most of the focal time in my life was music. Um, by the time sophomore year rolled around in college, I had kind of like faded away from the social scene and was very heavily into, uh, I had a day job, was working, uh, up at college and I was also, I would get the, the village voice came out on a Tuesday. So the local paper or the... It was the New York City uh, sort of cool paper. Okay. And uh, it had all of the ads for musicians looking for uh, other musicians in the back. Okay. Or bands looking for guitarists or whatever else. And I uh, had to wait until Wednesday morning because it was came out on a Tuesday. It didn't make its way up three hours away to Scranton, Pennsylvania until the next morning. But by the end of Wednesday, I had read the entire want ads for musicians and booked a whole bunch of auditions in the city. And then I would drive down uh, after class. I can't believe I did this. I would I would go to class until 6 p.m. and then I would use the next three hours to go to New York City to have an audition and then turn right back around and drive the other three hours in the other direction. I thought nothing of it. Yeah. I was like, that was definitely what I wanted to do. So um, it was... Uh, it was pretty serious for me, music, the whole way. I would say it was like tremendously serious. Um, from the, I didn't know how to have a music career. Nobody in my family has had anything to do with the music industry. And I didn't, um, I had one sort of uh, friend of the family who kind of, who was a production manager at the Nassau Coliseum. And he got me an internship there. And the deal with the internship was you also had to be on the cleaners crew. So I was cleaning up after the shows. Sure. And um, it was, that was like kind of like my first job in music, I guess. It's almost like earning your stripes as well. You can get into the music scene, but you yeah. need to do the nitty gritty work as yeah. well. Yeah. If you can't figure out how to pull a hot dog out of a Heineken <laughs> bottle, <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to play on stage. Um, I'm sure it's taught you well over the yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> but I always had a bunch of shitty job i've had real hard shitty jobs like my first job when i was 13 i worked in a fish market right. with like lots of old men <laughs> grumpy old salty dogs you know totally. um yeah so i i didn't know how to have a career in music but i had been working on it un, unbeknownst to myself for a very long time and were your family quite supportive then i suppose if they've not been in the as much as they thing? could have been you know they didn't um you know this working class family. They think that your 
your father or your mother is going to be like, you need to get do something I can help you with, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get involved in this shit. I don't know anything about. Totally. So it was kind of like that. It was, they, they, they were as supportive as they possibly could have been. And they're both uh, musicians themselves, but not professionally. Okay. My father played drums and has a real good voice. And my mother uh, was a guitarist in a folk band when she was in high school. Um, she showed me the first thing on guitar that I ever learned, which was uh, My Girl by The Temptations. It's a good tune. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, an interesting sort of like ignorant career path that I was on. This did you well? So far, yeah. So when you were doing these auditions, when you were when you were going up to New York, were you thinking, I want to join a band or I want to create my own band or what was your? I didn't know. I didn't care. Yeah. I just wanted to play music with somebody with somebody else. You know. Yeah. Um, Do you remember your first gig? Uh, mm, not really. I remember. Well, so I played when when I was. Um, I guess I was eleven. I played. Uh, money for nothing okay. in my seventh grade uh, talent show. Go. Did you um, win? I don't think that I don't think there were winners or losers. Uh, I think okay. it was just like oh, everybody Showcase. go up and do your thing. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. Uh, so I did that, and um, that was my sort of first like public performance on the guitar. Um, and. Uh, the next thing I remember after that is, would have to be um, probably CBGB's when I was about 19 or 18. Late in my 18th year, or early in my 19th, I can't remember which, but we played, my stupid hardcore band played a, a showcase at, at CBGB's. Brilliant. Yeah, and um, that was an eye-opener. Um, so almost like a way of passage if you're play music in New York to play there you think of Debbie Harry and the Ramones and uh you know at the time CB's was kind of like take it for granted like you really you yeah. like like it was like it, well the people don't realize that as venerated as it is it was a fucking shithole man I mean literally the dog was walking around crapping on the floor all the time that actually so, happened yeah you hear these yeah stories yeah, yeah, and you, think, yeah. you could step that? on shit if you were walking through CBGB's <laughs> and it was like the floor was like this uneven plywood that had been nailed down over the years it was like held together with you know, solidified beer and gum and shit. Um, the PA was the loudest fucking rip your ears off PA you've ever heard in your life. I mean, it was just like brutal. Um, you know, the toilets were a mess. Um, and the dressing rooms were kind of cool, actually, because there was like these little like cubicle dressing rooms that ran down the back hallway. I think there was three of them. And, and there was a space up a back behind the stage that you that everyone put their gear. So, like, the next band that was on put their gear up on top of the behind-the-stage area. chaos. And the monitors were on the ceiling. There was no floor monitors on the, on the stage at CBGB's, and it was like those crazy. monitors were louder than the PA. <laughs> it was so loud, man. It was so loud up there. It was just insanity. Um, and I... Uh, I had a like clumsy first show there pulled my cord out of my guitar I was nervous as hell you know um but still was okay and then uh played there once or twice again saw walt mink there saw a bunch of good shows there um and then the only time we ever played cbgb's was like uh it was the summer of 2000 right after the record came out 
and Joey Ramone invited us to open no up way. for him. Yeah, Joey Ramone and Ronnie Spector. We opened for them at CV's. That's amazing. And that was something else. Yeah. That was really cool. That's bucket list stuff. Yeah, that was it? pretty bucket list. And he was there, and he was just like real soft spoken guy. And I had bumped into him in a Radio Shack in in uh, Union Square, uh, like four years before that, or maybe three years before that. You were writing the album for four years. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Um, and uh, he didn't remember me from the from the Radio Shack store, of mm -hmm. course. But um, but he was just real sort of like soft-spoken like retreating dude who um was obviously not very well in health wise and he died the next year he he died right after that so um yeah i didn't get to know him or anything unfortunately but um but that was the only time we just ever played cbgb's was opening for it's a good one to do isn't it? <laughs> it's a solid Certainly. solid if you're going to do it that's the way to do it yeah it is the way to do it um but um, anyway, um, so yeah, after that, sort of like the period between 95 and 99 when we signed right. the record deal was um, I was with Phil Jimenez, our, our co-producer for the first record. And we were we had sort of gathered all of our, our arsenal of gear together at his apartment in Huntington which was a little bit closer to the city than the town I grew up in, but not by much. And we recorded and re-recorded and re-recorded and re-recorded and rearranged and threw out and re-established and tinkered with the first album for four years. Did you know the sound you were looking for? Yes. Was, yeah. I was very sure that I wanted uh, a hip-hop song in the rhythmic context and i wanted a some somewhere between james taylor and metallica and acdc on the top sort of like the the um the melodic context so so um it took a long time to get that um feel together of course it was this odd recipe to try and merge and um I was really into LL Cool J and Public Enemy when I was a kid and the hip-hop side of life, NWA as well, but more Public Enemy because they were Long Islanders. Of course. It's almost so LL Cool J was yeah. from Queens, yeah. So um, it, the, the local hip-hop thing in New York at KRS-One as well um, was an early influence on me. Um, it's just all those Public Enemy beats, uh, those loops that they built for those records, those... those Sounds were so cool. Yeah. They're just so cool. Um, oddly, I wasn't that into the Beasties. People have asked me okay. before. I wasn't really... I wasn't into Beastie Boys until Check Your Head. Okay. When they kind of went back to being a band, that's yeah. when I got into mm -hmm. to the Beasties. I wasn't a Paul's Boutique fan. I'm not going to lie. I was like... it. it, it I missed it. You. you know? Yeah. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, Check Your Head was my favorite Beasties record. But but I wanted Dirtbag to feel like, you know, one of our drummers, Will Will Tully, this drummer that we have from time to time, he says that it's you, it, to play Dirtbag correctly, you have to have hip-hop feet and rock and roll hands. Not everybody's got that. No, that's a tricky, <laughs> it's tricky. And every time we hire a new drummer to do a tour, to do a record or whatever, and we have to prepare Dirtbag for some reason, which is almost all the time. Of course. Um, that one takes the long dirtbag takes the longest to get through despite all the progressive stuff that we've done on the more recent records yeah which is tricky but but the 
the sort of the pop hybrid of, of Dirtbag's uh, backbeat is very difficult. And we have to keep it up ourselves or we'll lose it. So, And I've been asked before, is it, do you like performing? I said, yeah, because it's fucking hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's tricky. You've achieved something. By yeah, 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 yeah. It's like tricky, you know. And the crowd knows if you fuck it up. Man. <laughs> yeah. you know? I watched the video of you recently and, and you were chinning your guitar. I better tune it for this one because people know what this sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to ask you about that song because obviously you, you spent four years writing the album and that album in itself done amazing all over the world but do you ever get fed up playing it or do you ever no. you sometimes hear of these bands that have got you know this song that's propelled them to you know universal stardom and they get fed up of it you know? I never get fed up yeah I mean <laughs> talk about a first world problem for <laughs> I mean like like I like I I wanted to do this so bad for any for in any context since I was so young and you know dirtbag is this like sort of weaponized piece of pop culture that you know, clears the path for us to do this. Yeah. And I, I why get, get frustrated with it? No, no. no. <laughs> I was Hell talking no. to a friend before I came on here who's also a big Wheatus fan. When we were really young growing up, we used to go to like, your gigs and loads of other bands' gigs, kind of pop punk gigs and stuff when we were growing up. Yeah. And he says, you know, that's really like a, a cultural imprint in, in our generation. You know, it's everyone's heard it. And it's... Yeah. Um, it's interesting you say the, the pop punk thing. Um, at the time... In the year 2000, uh, there were so many three-piece pop-punk outfits from Southern California yeah. that it almost became this thing that, like, that's the only thing that rock music could be at that in that year. So, of course, we got lumped in. But I, but totally that's different. not what it sounds yeah. like. It doesn't totally. sound like so. We're a New York band. Exactly. You know, Dirtbag does not sound like SoCal punk in any way. Not at all. Um, and it was just the timing that came out, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Did you expect it to do so well? No. No? No, no, no. I, I knew it was good, and I knew that it would connect on some level with people emotionally. I didn't understand how that would happen because I had been in and out of the record deal business enough times by 1999 to know that that wasn't all that it took. Yeah. You know, um, I'm telling you, in some universe, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is sitting on a shelf and no one's ever heard it. Yeah. Like that's it, it. It what what it has to do with is uh, it's, uh, it's sad to say, but it's true. Uh, it's not a meritocracy. To some degree, the song has to connect. Uh, it has to be good. But that's that at the time was only something that could benefit you after you've lined up all the other ducks sure you know so um so i knew that at, by that time already that it was very much a game of chance and the chaos of the universe was either going to bestow us with access to people who could hear it or not sure. and columbia records happened to be that at the time obviously the second record they didn't hear teenage dirtbag the sequel so they weren't interested yeah uh, but but you know that's like that's multinational corporate sales for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I spoke to a band recently, it's a, a Scottish band called Father Son, and they, they were talking about they've got a great relationship with their record label and almost that there's not too much pressure on them, but I suppose on a, a label like Columbia, it's, you know, it has to be number one after number one almost, or is, it, is that a bit different from that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I'm, I don't, I, well, what's crazy about that is that we, um, our first record recouped. Yeah. We we that was unheard of. Like we we spent no money on it, and it did really well. And they were like, still like, nah, 
You're joking. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, man. It's like, it was real, you know? Yeah. And, it, it and you just, must be buzzing off it, and then to hear that from them, it's a bit like, oh, fuck's sake. Like, I'm, yeah, I mean, I I knew that that was also possible. I mean, it surprised me, but yeah. but it, I, I somewhere in the back of my head, I was cynical enough to know that that could happen. Yeah. Um, and when it did, I, uh, I, you know, I expressed concern in a meeting one time with Columbia executives about, well, you know, if you're not going to get behind our second album i should probably go get my day job back and i wasn't being smart ass i was being concerned i was like really concerned like, realistic, yeah. yeah i don't have i don't have a trust fund to sit on i ha i i either make records that make money or i go back to work yeah. and um when they heard me say that they got pissed i think that they didn't like that they thought that was me being disrespectful or something and i was just being honest and they said you know you can take your damn record and get out of here so we left with the second album i think that's maybe a lot to do with your your upbringing as well though you know you've, you've came from as you says a working class background and you know that yeah my dad sold cars and my mom worked full-time as an interior decorator yeah. you know mm. for wealthy people yeah, <laughs> like, I, mean, I don't uh, you know we didn't have we didn't have it like that yeah, yeah. so there's probably a lot of bands out there that would sit and think you know well i've got something to fall back on after this so i'm, I'm going to just listen to what the, the executives are going to tell me yeah, well, they're not looking out for your bank account, whether yeah. you're a rich kid or not, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, to some degree, I guess it's like, it's safer to, to get involved in music if you are a rich kid. You might not have as much to say, yeah. you know, but... Um, Almost in the days of the internet, that's, you know, I feel that we're getting into this culture that to take the risk and become a musician, you know, it's almost going to get to it as you have to have that money to start off with, you know. Yeah. It's a bit yeah, of shame, yeah. isn't it? Oh. I mean, I worked my ass off at, at at day jobs and scrounged and saved for microphones and cables and things. And I spent no money on, I mean, I haven't bought underwear since I was 14. Yeah. You know? Like, I mean, like, I don't, I, I save whatever I don't absolutely need to spend money on. I save it. And, sure. um, and it's because I want to find, you know, that that Grom's compressor on eBay from from 1978, that one that they made that year, that I that I know sounds really good. It's not worth a lot of money, but like that's what it, it was means like, more to you. It's a tool yeah. for me to do something, yeah. yeah. So and it's like uh, you have your little obsessions and you and you figure out how to make them real, I guess. And that that can be a music career, perhaps. You know, I guess if your instincts are sharp enough, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, moving on from from that first album, obviously the second one, you didn't do this, but I feel with some of your other albums, you've obviously done the pay as much as you like you know we you, have yeah, we, we, i suggested that to sony on our second album <laughs> i said why don't you just print up a million copies send them to the stores and give them away on the shelves <laughs> and, they, and they were like what flopping <laughs> no and i was like well i mean like that's what's going to happen anyway and we did it we did it on our website and then radiohead did it also i think they might have beat us by a few months or something but but we were trying to get that going for a long time. There's a few, there are a few accountants and executives at Sony who who do remember me saying that in 2002, give the record away. Um, Bet you wish they'd listened at the time though. Yeah, they were. They thought I was fucking crazy. <laughs> they were like, "Get this asshole out of here right now." <laughs> so you know. Is that a reason why you do so many live shows then? Because the you know the sales of CDs are. Run the decline or? No, we don't. I mean, we don't make money when we come over here. We subsidize it with with publishing income from Teenage Dirtbag. So every time somebody rents uh, 
loser on on netflix yeah. we get a little trickle of money that pays for this tour bus and then we sure. come over here and we do 35 shows right. you know and we we're always in in the hole yeah sometimes it's thirty thousand pounds sometimes it's sixty thousand but you that's know the love of doing it then it's you know it's you know, we're not doing this to be rich yeah you know even though we're sitting on a beautiful tour bus this thing does not belong to me yeah. it's temporary because dirtbag was in it was in the film loser obviously as you touched yeah. on there but there was another film recently wasn't it was it bullying or was that a different bully story? had a version uh, yeah. from uh, the scala choir yeah yeah, yeah. do you yeah. when you get these requests coming in from from films do you think it has to tie in with what i'm looking for or would you just say go uh on? i've said no to a handful of things over the years that i wasn't crazy about but uh, most of the people who reach out and want to use dirtbag for something are emotionally connected to the content so they get get it right somehow sure yeah yeah what's your favorite weakest track uh that's an interesting question uh right now this is like kind of a draw um between the song valentine yeah which is the title track from our uh, sixth studio album. And um, two of the songs from the new record, a song called Lullaby, which is already on Spotify, and then a song called Michelle, which is not yet. And we have been playing both live. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I suppose when you've got six studio albums, when you're coming to write a set list... We don't. Be, we no? don't write set lists. Do you not, no? No, nah, we let the crowd call them right okay yeah every um, show every show we haven't written a set list for a very long time um we had a set list for the busted tour because okay. we had to keep a tight clock yeah but um uh aside from that our club gigs we haven't done set lists for club gigs in uh maybe 12 or 14 years right. something like that good did you ever come off stage thinking oh, i wish i'd played that song and no one asked for it or Mm, yeah sometimes there's a little bit of like oh man more more than not it's the kid who is shouting a song too close to the end for us to squeeze it in yeah. that's the real problem oh, he's waited too long and he's finally totally. giving it up but. you don't want that kid getting home thinking oh no they never yeah, it's like, oh, we gotta play dirtbag now man you know <laughs> should have totally. said that earlier uh, exactly but uh, that's a little bit of a regret sometimes what were busted like great guys yeah yeah james is a friend of mine we met in 2005 wrote a bunch of songs together over the years um we have similar similar points of view on inspiration he and i um and we kind of muse together on things in the same way but um yeah busted were really good to us they were just they're just friends they're just like other musician friends you know um it was a big they were wearing a big uh responsibility doing that yeah. reunion tour it sure. was like a lot of pressure I watched it every night they yeah. had a lot of work to do on that they were running around like lunatics really yeah it's a lot of material that they played and a lot of a lot of production a lot of a lot of having to give the crowd their money's worth you yeah. know they smashed it though it they seems did. like they sold they out, out every out night the park, and, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think they maybe done two nights in Glasgow I could be could be wrong with that uh, no I remember we did the one just the one they may have done yeah. two on their theater tour they did okay Sure. But this uh, arena-wise, it was just the one. Yeah, just the one. I think it's nice to hear that you know bands are taking their friends out on tour with them because 
I know from the music industry at the moment, it's almost like there's so much pressure from agents and record labels that you have to take this next. Well, you said a mouthful there. Yeah. Me, me and James have been talking about trying to do that kind of thing for over a decade. Yeah. And it's finally happened. And um, it was just his insistence and his vision. Um, he kept saying to me, you know, man, when you play Dirtbag last, it's going to bring the crowd up to this spot. And then we'll have them from that spot. We need them to be at that spot to make it worthwhile. So like we, we I and I agreed to talk to him a lot about like how we do things and how Busted does things. And, and it really would be a nice dovetail if we could get that together. And we talked about that for years. Over a decade we talked about that. And then it actually happened. I'm guessing it didn't happen for those reasons. You know, they were saying that you have to take X, Y, and Z out on tour with you rather than... Oh, they, it's always some political... Uh, half-assed political arrangement you know who suffers is the fans yeah. because they wind up having to sit through something they're not interested in and that does not match the vibe of what they're of what's happening so yeah but but um and i suppose the not, support bands suffer as well don't they because they want to be sure do that listen to them the last thing you want to be is a support band on a tour that you're not welcome on by the fans yeah. i've had that experience that is that's a real waste of time and you sense it and you want to apologize every night and say look I know you're not into our music I'm really sorry there's nothing I can do about this this is like out of my hands you know and complaining about being on stage in front of people is an asshole thing to do anyway but the fact of the matter is is that people work really really hard for that ticket money and if they have to spend it they want to spend it well and if they get something like that that's just a piece of bullshit from somebody's like back room, you know, dealings and isn't quality or isn't or isn't like making the experience better, I would be pissed off too. Yeah. You know? Sometimes tickets are really expensive these days. It's insane. Totally. They just keep going up and up, don't they? It's, yeah. You, you man. look at these tickets from ten years ago and yeah. it was half the price, but yeah. Well what you need is a proper fan boycott. But it might be hard to pull that off. Totally. What's the what's the best tour you've done? Who's the your favorite bands that you've toured with over the years? Uh, we toured with Eve Six. Um, we toured with Harvey Danger, SR Seventy One, Zebrahead, um, OPM. Uh, that was early on in the in the process. Um, they're still marching. They're, they're marching, marching away. There's a lot of them. Maybe they do have a hundred thousand people today. Telling you, Brendan, they won't report that in the press. No, they won't, will they? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted that's you. That's fine, that's fine, it's worth it. Um, so, uh, the. Um, uh, I suppose on this tour you've picked your own supports as well, haven't you? Yeah, we've toured with um, Mike Doty. Um, <laughs> we've toured with uh, Bowling for Soup and James's oh. other band, uh, Son of Dork. Yeah. Um, we're Son of Dork on the Bone for Soup tour as well. I'm yeah, sure. they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I remember yeah, that, that yeah. was great. And Army of Freshmen, who are friends, dear crazy, friends of ours. Yeah. Um, Chris, that's the front man. Yeah, them, yeah, yeah Chris J is amazing. Um, they always tour with Bone for Soup, don't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they've done a few. They've done a few yeah. tours with Soup. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of the perfect Bowling for Soup opener. Yeah, totally. And he's he's a live wire, isn't he? He's yeah, such Chris, a great front man. Yeah, he's a great front man. I watched him do in Yeovil. I watched him do a front flip off of a two stories above the crowd down into the pit and fall flat on his back oh, into the God. crowd and it was amazing <laughs> <Agony>. <laughs> well no he didn't get hurt they no, caught him they? yeah they all caught him 
It was crazy, man. Do you not think I'm going to try that next time around? Fuck that. <laughs> no way. Life's dangerous enough, man. I got to sing like a girl tomorrow. So, I can't be doing that shit. <laughs> what have you got lined up for the next few months? Because you're, you're non-stop, aren't you? Uh, yeah, we're touring for until June 2nd. And we go home uh, that week and then um, you know, try and recuperate for a while. And then I have to get started on uh, re-recording, uh, finishing up the re-record of album one. It's 20 years, isn't it? It's 20 years, and we got uh, a 20 song version of it. Brilliant. It's prepped. So, for so the year 2020. New tracks in then? Yeah. 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 Brilliant. There, uh, there are songs that over the years kind of felt more like they belonged on album one, and we just didn't do anything with them because they had that vibe. Would have, would have stuck out like a sore thumb on what we were working on at the time. So, uh, there's 20, there's 20 tunes. Brilliant. Yeah. Are you going to tour that as well? Oh yeah, yeah, everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Anyway. Yeah, we'll be back. I think autumn of two thousand twenty, we'll be back. God, I can imagine you'll be out for the the whole year almost if you. Yeah, possibly. I, I, you know, I'm not sure we can take that kind of abuse, but yeah. possibly. How do you? Manage? I'm getting old. I'm going to be forty six when we do that. Really? Yeah. Did you still suppose you still connect with the songs, or you wouldn't play them though? Oh yeah, I would still, I'll still play them. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, will never be a piece of our material that I don't play. I didn't write the song "Punk Ass Bitch" on our first record, so we don't really play that one because it isn't my composition. Okay. Nobody in the band can claim that composition, so sure. we don't. We, we, we blow that one off. We do sometimes play the, um, the Jackie Chan cartoon version yeah. for laugh, which is fun. But um, yeah, it's it's not really truly a, a, a Weedus catalog piece sure. for live touring so we just don't but um but everything else is on the table Brilliant. and it's a little scary does it what are you <laughs> it's like 80 songs yeah <laughs> you know it's like i gotta remember a lot of lyrics man do you ever forget them from time to time i i, I fumble through something here I and there's that guy in the front row singing the right words back to you as well no well sometimes <laughs> sometimes they stay if i watch somebody else singing the wrong words i'll get it wrong <laughs> That happens. Yeah. That happens. As you go to these gigs and people are trying to sing along and you just see them moving their mouth and you know that they're exactly. really they the words. Know. But they're having a good time. Exactly. Just don't just don't focus on what they might be saying. What are you, <laughs> you expecting for the Glasgow show tonight then? Um I fucking love playing Glasgow. It's since the Barrowlands in two thousand and one, it's been one of those places that we just always have a great time in. Crowds in Glasgow will not let you have a bad show. They will not have it. <laughs> we hear that we go to gigs ourselves we play music and stuff and you hear all these bands touring and saying oh Glasgow's the best crowd that you'll play to and we, I think if you're Scottish you sometimes think oh, very good they're just saying that yeah but is there a it's bit of not, truth it's true yeah, yeah. <laughs> well Scotland and Wales yeah. there are parts of Wales where the same experience is available how does it compare to the States we just toured America we just did a month and a half in the States with Mike Doty and I think that the American crowds you know they watch us play a rush cover and they watch us do our sort of progressive rock stuff and they're thinking like this is the teenage dirtbag band like what the hell it's so far removed from that yeah. first album yeah and i'm fine with that yeah that's a very interesting um it's almost like you're having like a, a seminar or something but you're 20 years older your music's going to change over the years yeah it's never going to that was the thing that was the problem with with the only problem with teenage dirtbag for some people, is that there was no sequel, and there cannot be. No, how do you? Why would you do up? that? You know, like there shouldn't have been no Star Wars sequel. Should have never happened either, man. Like, come on, don't do that. You know, 
it's fine. Yeah. Just leave it like it is. It means something to people, and that means more than whatever else you have to say on the matter. Totally. What's the future for you then after the 20th anniversary? We just keep going, keep uh, Yeah, we're going to finish up album seven, which is really heavy. Uh, like I said, there's three songs prepared for it in the set. It's all sort of sort of metal, metal tonalities, uh, plugged into different um, genres. So like a pub classic sing along kind of song, and then a, a sort of 1930s jazz standard Brilliant. performed with metal tones, and then like a sort of penny whistle doo wop song performed with metal tones. That that kind of thing. Good. Yeah. Good. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Good luck with the show tonight. Yeah, man, it's going to be and, fun. Uh, to thanks it. very much to everyone that's watched this episode of the DW Podcast. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, thanks very much uh, to Brendan for having us on their tour bus. Uh, no and, problem. And taking the time before the show. Uh, if you've not seen the DW Podcast before, please go out and check out the previous episodes. Uh, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Cheers. guys. <laughs>